to read together God's word, which is a means of grace to give us faith in Christ and strengthen that faith. So also, 2 Samuel 11 is a means of grace for us this morning and every day. Page 308 in your pew Bibles. Page 308. We've just had so many good reports about David. So strong for his people. So kind and loving. So good. And now, as Calvin writes, chapter 11 is a passage that should make everybody's hair stand straight up when we see how far such a good man can fall. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah, or said, sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Jacob, or Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? 
Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerebesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, oh, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and he came and he told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, that the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messengers, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, or literally was evil in the Lord's eyes. May God bless us by this word, people of God. One of the greatest disappointments we face in life is discovering that one of our heroes has fallen. Somebody we really look up to. Good person. Godly person. Falls big time. Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, The best of men are only men at their very best. Patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, they're all sinners who need a savior. Oh, they may be holy, useful, honorable in their place, wrote Ryle, but they're still sinners after all. Well, this has got to be one of the most disappointing chapters in the Bible. David a man who has been persecuted and handled that with such a godliness, patiently waiting for the Lord to give him the throne. A man who's been so strong against God's enemies for God's people to give them a safe place to live. A man who's been so kind. Remember the kindness to Mephibosheth? who's really an enemy of the king from Saul's household. And then he steps outside of Israel in chapter 10 to show kindness to the Ammonites, to their new king. And that results in in the Ammonites allying with the Syrians to come to war against David because of his kindness. And now this. He falls into deep, scandalous sin. And one of the marks of the truthfulness of the Bible, congregation, is that God doesn't hide the sins of its heroes. In fact, sometimes God concentrates on the sins and quickly bypasses their good deeds. God does not whitewash the saints. Never. It's one of the marks of the truthfulness of the Bible. Because the message of the Bible 
is not to put your trust in man, but to put your trust in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And David, both in his successes, but also in his failures, is God's pointer to Jesus Christ. And that's where he wants us to go today. Not to put our confidence in ourselves or in anyone else, but only in Jesus, who alone can save the world and alone can save us from our sins, who alone never fails and never falls in any in anything. A man after God's own heart? Well, yes, but also very fallen to direct us to the true man after God's own heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see three things here. David's frightful fall, then his callous cover-up, and thirdly, David's gracious God. His frightful fall. Look at verse 1a. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. This is a story, David's fall, and a larger story. And remember that larger story started in chapter 10 when the Ammonites and the Syrians made an alliance to go and destroy David and destroy Israel. And under the commander Joab and Abishai, both sides were destroyed. Now they're really mad and the Syrians gather together a whole group of a a huge army and they come and fight and David beats them. And now in chapter 12, 11, we have the rest. The Ammonites now gather and try once more to pick off David and Israel. That's the larger story. But the central story is what David's doing in this battle against the Ammonites or not doing. Did you see? Verse 1, the time when kings go out to battle. Oh, a little red flag there, kings. And then the last half of verse 1, but David remained at Jerusalem. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's slacking. He's coasting. He's not fighting. He's not protecting Israel. He's resting on his laurels. He's thinking, I've been so faithful. Things have gone so well. God has so blessed me. I can take it easy and everything will be okay. I'm great and everything's good. That's where he's at. And so what's he not doing? He's not putting on his armor to go, to go out and fight, not physically and not spiritually. He's lounging. He's coasting. And that's scary. Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If I think I'm in a really good spot right now and I'm strong and I'm in a good way and everything's okay, that's the most dangerous position a Christian can ever be in. Not when you're in the midst of battle and you're getting beat up and you're crying out to the, that's not the worst. The worst spot is this. That's the most dangerous place to be in. Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. On our own, we're so weak that the strongest Christian, the most accomplished man or woman of God, the most decorated veteran among the saints in the good fight of the faith can fall, and frightfully so, in just one moment. 
Oh, when we fall, God will forgive us when we repent. But there's still so much collateral damage in Christ's kingdom, and you see that in the next 11 chapters, the fallout of David's fall. Oh, all couched in God's grace, but the fallout. And so the message is put on the full armor of God, brothers, sisters, So you can stand in the evil day, the day of temptation. You can flee temptation and stand in the Lord. Don't assume you can't fall. Don't assume your loved one can't fall. Don't assume your pastor can't fall. Don't assume those things. Those are lies. So lounging at home in his palace while his servants are out fighting the good fight... David is strolling across his roof. That was people's porch or deck in those days. It was on the roof. And he sees a very beautiful woman bathing. It was a ritual bathing, commanded in God's word, following likely her ceremonial monthly uncleanness. But look at the verbs in quick succession in verses 3 through 5. He sent, David sent a messenger. He inquired about her. Finds out she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He sent messengers again. He took her. She came. He lay with her. She returned to her house. She conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Like it's nothing. Like it's okay. So easy. Men will be men. That's what's so frightful. How easy and rapidly this all went. Without care in the world. Care less. And if you want to put some blame on Bathsheba, don't. Because the Bible doesn't. The onus is put squarely on David. This is his sin. Men treat adultery like it's no big deal in our culture. But when you see chapter 12, God sending, going after David with the preacher Nathan... And how evil this is in his sight. And all the words used in Psalm 51 for this sin. It's evil. It's transgression. It's iniquity. It's sin. This is so grievous in the eyes of God. This is so despicable. It's an assault on Bathsheba. It's an assault against Uriah, her husband. It's an assault on Israel. Most of all, it's an assault on God and on his Christ. David is defiling Messiah's throne. He's just been told in the covenant in chapter 7 that this throne I'm setting up in Israel that you're sitting on will lead to the seed who will sit on it eternally. This is Messiah's throne. This is the Christ on the promised seed. And you are, you are defiling it. You're making this such a dirty spot. And assaulting the name of Jesus Christ. Slandering the beauty and the purity and the perfection of Israel's true king, Jesus Christ. Here he is, the man after God's own heart. Anointed with the Holy Spirit. The head of God's people. A man who's walked with God so closely and intimately. And he falls so far and so quickly and so hard and so frightfully. You see, he has the Spirit, but he's not keeping in step with the Spirit. He's not praying to be filled with the Spirit. He's not walking with his God. 
And we need to be reminded, congregation, how weak we are, how much we need to be putting on the armor of God every day. We need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be seeking God's face and God's grace. Every morning we need to say, Lord, I am weak. I cannot stand the temptations that are coming my way today. I don't even know what they are maybe. Help me. Strengthen me. Fill me with your son. Fill me with your spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, just because you're saved by Jesus and just because God loves you doesn't mean you can't fall. So let's not clock our tongues at David and say, oh, I can't believe you would do such a thing. Let's look at ourselves. And the next thing that we're being taught here is don't trust in weak, infallible men. Yes, God uses them in our lives as leaders, but Trust in Christ alone. He's the only infallible, faithful, and fully reliable servant of God. Not only the strengths of the saints, the strengths of David, but also their weaknesses point us to Christ. Let's go to Christ. Let's go to Christ. The second thing we meet here is David's callous cover-up. You've got a, a choice when you commit sin. Repent. Come clean. Get rid of it right away or stay in it and go deeper into it through cover-ups. David chose the second. Oh, what lengths David went to cover up his sin so he could still look good. How abusive he became in his panic to do damage control. And rather than confess and repent, he commits three more terrible sins or packages of sins to cover up the first sin. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Here's the first cover-up sin. Verse 6, he calls Uriah home from the battle and covers that return with a pack of lies too. Verse 7, he asks Uriah how the war is going, as if he really cares about that. I, I'm, I'm here to get a report. That's a lie. Verse 8, he sends Uriah to his house to wash his feet as if he really wants to give him a little rest. I hear you've been fighting hard and you need refreshment. What another, what a lie. And then verse 8b, he, he sends a present home like, like he really wants to honor him. What a lie. But his whole plan is to have Uriah spend a few nights with his wife to make it look like Uriah is the father of David's child. I love Uriah's response. He's a Hittite. He's a Gentile. He's been converted to Christ. He's been brought into the household of God as an outsider. And he refuses to play the game. I can't live in my house and sip wine and spend time with my wife when Israel's at war, when even the ark of God is still in a tent. My fellow soldiers are slogging it out in the open fields. He's far more concerned about 
Christ's kingdom than David is at this point, this outsider. And often it's that way to our shame that new believers, far more zealous and concerned about the kingdom of Christ than longtime believers. We can get so complacent and careless. Lord, fill us with your spirit and with zeal. Second sin package. Well, I can't get David to spend time with the wife when he's sober. So, invite him to a party to my house and make him drunk. And it says there, he made him drunk. In some way, he was coerced into this terrible. Maybe he'll lose his spiritual alertness if I make him drunk so that he'll go home and spend time with his wife. still has enough clarity of mind to say I'm not going there and he spends the night on a couch in a room full of servants by the palace third sin package David goes from bad to worse he sends Uriah back to the battle lines with a letter for Joab put Uriah where the fighting is hardest and then pull back from him and the guys the troops that are with him so that they can be killed And given what we know about Joab as a rather callous person, we're not surprised that he complies with David's wishes, just following orders, you know. And so Uriah and a bunch of other soldiers with him wind up dead. So then Joab sends back a messenger to go and tell this to David. Look, O king, we got too close to the city and we lost this skirmish and a bunch of our guys wound up dead. And then Joab says to the messenger, but I know David, he's going to get on his high horse and he's going to start a rant about how Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth, also known as Gideon, Judges 9, died because he got too close to the city and a woman threw a millstone on him. Uh, Don't you know from your history you shouldn't be get too, you know, they would start a rant and then tell him, oh, Uriah's dead and everything will be okay. And that's exactly what happened. The messenger goes on today with a detailed battle report and then adds, oh, by the way, Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David's response is utterly callous and shocking. Just tell Joab, it's okay. It's okay, man, don't be upset. You win some, you lose some. It's just a little bit of blood. The sword devours one as well as another. Hey, just step up your assault and try again. Give him some encouragement. Evil. How callous a person can become when you're trying to cover up your scandal. It becomes a brutal preoccupation. And you're willing to sacrifice not only Uriah, but David's willing to sacrifice Joab's integrity and Israel's victory and safety. Everything and everyone becomes fair game when you're so preoccupied with protecting yourself. And then you become the ugly center of your own wicked world. This is the way it works. So ugly and egregious and despicable that words can't really express to what depths this man after God's own heart has descended. You say, is this possible? And the answer is yes, it's possible. Then the wife of Uriah hears about her husband's death. 
She laments, and then David brings her to the palace and marries her. And we don't get any sense that she's compliant. She's being forced into this. We don't read about a protest. I know that, but this is David's doing. David seems to have lost his heart for God. There's no heart here. No heart here for God in this chapter. No mention of God except by Uriah. And then a half a verse at the end from the narrator, the Holy Spirit writer. For the rest, God is absent from David's life. And it's also proper and legal. Yeah, we do the proper mourning time and then we marry. You see, everything's right. The I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. But how often? That's what legalism does. Under a proper facade, a facade of doing things the right way, the inside is rotten to the core. A whitewashed tomb of dead men's bones. Oh, brother, sister, I hope our life isn't in that spot where the facade is good. Yep, we're doing all the right things, following the rules, but your heart is wicked. Your life is so wrong. So wrong. So far away from the Lord. Even a man after God's own heart can wander in his heart and life from the Lord and grieve God's Holy Spirit. Now one of the main objections Christians face from opponents to our faith Look how bad Christians can be. Look at the terrible things the church has done in history. Look at the evil deeds of slavery and racism and sexism, which have not only been committed by Christians, but sometimes defended by Christians. What can we say? What can we say? Except to say yes to our shame. Guilty. 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 And then say, can't put your faith in Christianity. got to put your faith in Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and he came for such sins as these. For we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a redeemer. We all need a savior. Luther, too, was all too human. In 1543, he wrote a book, an essay, that his biographer, Roland Bainton, who just, his biographer, Bainton, just loves Luther. Luther is his hero. But he says, I wish Luther died 10 years earlier so he didn't write that work in which he slams the Jews and says all kinds of nasty things about them. I wish he died 10 years earlier. Like, this wrecks my image of Luther, and that's... That's sort of what we need. That's why we need this chapter. So that we learn that the best of men are men at best. And that we should not put our trust in anyone. In fact, we should do the opposite. We should help others, especially leaders, to be faithful and to help protect them against falling. 
So brothers and sisters, we need desperately 2 Samuel 11, and God knows we do. I, I wish sometimes God wouldn't put the stuff in the Bible that he does. It makes us look bad. But that's what God wants because it's true. And that's what we need. So that Christianity is not built on the power and goodness of men, but only on the power and goodness of the God-man, Jesus. The, really the only hero. The only one you can finally trust. And maybe you are the sort of person who lives quite a clean, moral, and intelligent Christian life. You sort of place yourself above others who have really made some stupid choices and sinned, and you act like that's below your level. But you know, when we see believers fall and we read of David's fall, we need to be horrified, not so much at them, but at, at ourselves. That was when Augustine came to his teacher, Pastor Ambrose, to report of some fellow pastor had committed adultery. Ambrose just looked at Augustine and said, Ambrose was an old man by this time, yesterday it was him, today it might be me. And that's how we have to receive this news from God. We learn to look at ourselves and see what we're capable of doing and rush to the Lord Jesus Christ not only for forgiveness, but also look to his spirit for the armor of God and be putting on the armor every day to protect ourselves from ourselves. Well, thirdly, we see David's gracious God. Just a brief focus on the last half of the last verse and all the raw sewage of 2 Samuel 11. One tiny ray of hope for God's people it's found in 27b, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, or the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Praise the Lord. There are no cover-ups with our God. His eyes see all things. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs 15, verse 3. God's not going to allow this sin to stay undercover. He's not going to allow David to get away with this. This might sound like bad news, but it's extremely good news. When God blows the lid off our lives, exposes us and calls us to repentance. To come back. And that's extreme love. That's extreme grace. And chapter 12, verse 1, Nathan's already on the way with a message from God. Now, I know it's, this is extremely bad news, Thing was evil in the eyes of the Lord. If we do not repent and continue to resist the Spirit and will not come clean before the Lord, then our sin remains and God will punish us eternally if we do not break from our sins. If we love our sin more than Him, if we continue with the cover up. But God's purpose and plan here is not to let David be destroyed by his own sin, but even more. Not to let David destroy all Israel and wreck the kingdom, the throne of Christ. He's not going to let that happen. God loves his people too much to let David wreck everything. This is Christ's throne. God has made a covenant with David to bring Jesus Christ to his throne. And not even the sins and the weaknesses of the kings who come before will God let stand in the way. 
It was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord rather than hand us over to the evil that sometimes gets the better of us, runs after us, pursues us by his goodness and mercy so that we may be saved, washed, and restored. And the church may continue to grow and be built until Christ returns. It's because there's a God in heaven who watches his people for our protection and safety and repentance. That we're safe. But what's really outrageous and scandalous here in the bigger picture is the scandal of grace. You know how God's going to use this marriage that was conceived and born in sin? Bathsheba, you know the rest of the story. Bathsheba becomes one of the ancestors or ancestress of Jesus. She's one of the great, great, great grandmothers that led to the birth of Jesus Christ. So God is willing to use this sin to exalt his kingdom and bring his Christ and save the world. I can't believe it. That's scandalous that God would do that. Willing to turn this sin around to his own glory. But that's what God does. To remind us that it's only when he takes our sin And turns them around to his own glory and the coming of his kingdom, the coming of Jesus and the destruction of the evil one. That's how his kingdom grows and is built. And the bigger scandal is the cross itself. How Jesus was abused and killed on a cross so violently and shamefully and unjustly and inhumanly. And that most despicable and egregious wickedness as God chooses to use that to have our sins paid for, to redeem us from our iniquity and to give us a new life through Jesus Christ, his son, using the greatest evil for the greatest good. Unbelievable. It's the scandal of grace. Oh, our God is so good. Let's give our lives to him, even our sins to him. Let's ask him to be merciful to us, gracious to us, forgive us. And take even the things that we're ashamed of or that have brought shame to us. Say, Lord, still use that in some way for your glory because you are a good and a gracious and a powerful God. We put our lives in your hand. Amen. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for 2 Samuel 11. We confess our need for this true story. Use this also to show us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Bring us to your Son. And through your Son, forgive our sins, but also arm us and equip us to stand valiantly in the face of temptation. 
to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Help us, Lord, not to become complacent, but to keep running to you as weak sinners to a strong God and a good God. So hear us and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.